Good morning. All 25 of you. <laughs> what a beautiful crowd it is. The few, that's okay. I would like to say that uh, I want to covet your prayers. Vicki and I will be traveling, and we're going to do that right after church services are over. We're going to hit the road, and between this afternoon and a week from tomorrow, we will have gone to Oklahoma City, Rockford, Illinois, uh, Flint, Michigan, and all the way back again. So we covet your prayers, particularly Vicki does, because it'll be Heather, Sean, and me doing most of the driving, and that's just going to drive her crazy. So please pray for her, that she'll have the patience and endurance through all of that. Would you bow with me, please? Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for this time. I'm thankful for the study that I've been able to do in this passage. And thank you, Father, for convicting my heart. May I share things that will be beneficial, uplifting, instructive, and encouraging to these, your people. May we take our walk with you seriously. May we look, Father, as we have studied in the Sermon on the Mount so far, as we have studied in the prophets, Habakkuk, studied in Nehemiah, our relationship with you is serious, and your whole Bible brings that out. And I confess the times, Father, when I've not taken my relationship with you as seriously as I need to in areas that I've not. Thank you, Father, for forgiving, for blessing, and for guiding. And I believe, Father, I speak for each one of us to say that we all can relate to that idea. May we give ourselves to you and to one another. And may, may we, Father, be a people who will bless you until the day we take our last breath in this life. And I ask your help in Jesus' precious name. Amen. First thing I want to do is review a little bit from last week's lesson. Uh, Chapter 9 was pretty much all built around a prayer. But it, was, it brought out the idea that there should be a difference, uh, a distinctness about us that we're willing to accept. Some aspects of conformity that we're not going to ascribe to. Something about the Christian life that is radical in the sense of being different from all the surroundings. We are to be uh, the counterculture. We've had a theme this year of being holy people serving a holy God. And, and the word holy means set apart and different. And the question, I guess, of the hour in some ways is, are we willing to pay that price to be identified as being such people? Uh, you don't mark your distinction and your dependence upon God simply by saying some prayers, by singing some songs and you know, going to certain services. There, there has to be a lifestyle that marks you and marks me as being distinct and dependent. And the prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 is going to result in something that takes place in chapter 10 that I find absolutely incredible. Uh, the prayer that they prayed had four segments that we looked at last week. Uh, they adored God's name. They affirmed God's goodness. They acknowledged their sins. And they agreed they needed to renew their obedience to God. And verse 38 is probably the key verse in some respects. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. 
And in this document, they're telling God that they mean business. So much so that they're willing to put it in writing. And this is how they're going to live from now on. And they're going to sign that. And I I still find it incredible to imagine, to have the courage to say, God, here's my letter to you and I'm signing it. I want you to know that I mean business in my confession of following you as one of your people. And what I want to do is look this morning at what happened after they prayed, after they made their declaration of dependence and distinction, to see that those who belong to God, they're going to behave the way he demands. And the time has come to show that loyalty. And it's going to be more than something in writing. It's going to be something in writing followed by a way of life that affirms that. The next thing I want you to notice is a general statement that's made in verses 28 and 29. Uh, 1 through 27, pretty much just a bunch of names of all the people who signed the document. But in verse 28, it says the rest of the people, all of those who had knowledge and understanding at the end of verse 28, and joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of our God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And you know, it it brings to mind Jesus' statement, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And they're going to show that they love God more than just in word, but also in deed. So they're going to, uh, they're helping us realize that just to confess sins while, uh, while cleaving to it, it's just a mockery. You can confess sin, but if you're still going to go back out and practice that, what have you done? To say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and these are the things that I've done wrong, and then go out and do them again, you're mocking God and the relationship with him. So they didn't just turn from sin. They turned to the authority of the scriptures they had, and they said they're going to let that guide their lives. And you know, to do that, you have to spend time in that word. You have to know what that word says. This is what he wants. This is what we will do. And and in doing that, then, there are a couple of prerequisites that we read about as we go through the text and and see what's happening here. Uh, This is open to male and female, to young and old, to husbands and wives and sons and daughters. But there are two things that, that are required of them in order to proceed with all this distinction and dependence. And the first one is, there has to be separation. And again, that word holy comes up. It's only for the people who are willing to separate themselves from their neighboring people. They're going to be different from all of them. To get serious with God, you have to get serious with your dealings with the world. We are in the world, Jesus said, but not of the world. We're to live like called out people. We are different. And so in in understanding what's there for them, we realize if you're not willing to do that, you shouldn't sign it unless you're really willing to separate yourselves. And the second is there's understanding. It's for those who have understanding. It's not for little kids. It wasn't for people who didn't know what they were doing. You know, God has never wanted your commitment and my commitment to be something that was inherited. 
He's never wanted us to, to just do certain things because, you know, when we were little in, in the church we went to, uh, they said, this is the way we do it here. We're to do it because God says so in his word. And then we in turn ask ourselves, you know, is that what we really want to do? Do we really want to do this? And so meeting those requirements then, you sign the letter. But when you sign that letter, it's going to be sent to God. You know, there are three specific, well, there's actually more than three in, in the text, but I'm only going to touch on three this morning. Three areas in which you're making promises, and you're going to keep them, and you're saying your life will be different. And what it's doing is, is showing us how to, to channel our desires and our commitment into practical decisions. And I want you to notice, this is a public agreement. This is what the whole body of God's people said. We are all involved in this. It's not just some. It's not just for uh, elders and, and ministers. It's for all of God's people. So it's a public thing. And some of the elements uh, that, that you look at, that maybe they're a little bit irrelevant because they don't apply to us as Christians today, but there are at least three areas that do apply. Every individual Israelite was involved. Every individual Christian should be involved. It should be an expression of what we believe. And doctrine and deeds always show up in, in a behavior that's, you can't separate doctrine from behavior. They go together in following God. And faith is always active obedience to God, not just a mental assent. So the next thing I want you to notice is there's going to be a distinctness in their family relationships. And I want you to notice how serious this gets. God's people are supposed to be distinct in their family relationships. And one of the biggest areas where people have trouble in commitment, I believe, is in the area of marriage. We live in a society where cohabitation has become more and more accepted. You know, just live together. Let's see if this is going to work out. If not, we can go our separate ways. We live in a society where let's go ahead and make the arrangement. We'll, we'll uh, get married. And if that doesn't work out, well, you know, well, that's just too bad. We'll go on and find somebody else and see how that does. And what bothers me the most is how often you see that in the church. People who call themselves disciples, holy, and what they're doing. I want you to look at verse 30 real closely. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They promised God not to be like the rest of the world when it comes to marriage. We're not going to, uh, we're not going to have the same attitude toward divorce, the same attitude toward cohabitation, uh, the same attitude toward homosexual marriages. We're not going to do that. God's people don't live that way. Marrying foreign people in the past had jeopardized their identity. It jeopardized their mission. It kept them from taking God seriously. And it still does. It still does affect them in that area. And I don't believe there's any better way to take God seriously than beginning in your home and every member of your family. And I'm rather disturbed by the incredible naivety in which Christians approach marriage. I, have you ever noticed how we, people tend to invest more in the wedding than they do in the marriage? They'll spend thousands of dollars on that one day. 
And then the rest of the life, what goes into that? In my short tenure here, I've seen more Christians marry non-Christians than marry Christians. I've watched people uh, marry people who suddenly want to become Christians in order to have that person to be their spouse, and they really don't care about God. And the thing about it is, is we really haven't said anything, at least not publicly. At least it hasn't come from uh, the leaders of the church like it should. That there's a problem. There's a concern that needs to be looked at. And I've had people say, well, you know, if my wife had never married me, I never would have become a Christian. And I would say, praise God for that. That's, that's a good thing. However, a couple of things I'd like you to consider. I heard about a congregation in Oklahoma... They studied their marriages over a certain length of time, and they noticed that 118 of their young people over so many years had married, 70. Over half had married non-Christians. 48 married Christians. And of the 48, only two had divorces. And 45 of that number were still attending church somewhere. Of the 70, 49 marriages where a Christian married a non-Christian, they had left the church. That's 70%. 19 of those 70, uh, of those 70% had already ended in divorce. And of the 70, 21 were still being faithful. And only 12 of those had resulted in their maid being converted. All that said to say that, you know, if you were brought to the Lord after your marriage to your mate, praise God for that. But like it or not, that makes you an exception to the rule and not the way it normally should work. Mac Layton, who has, is a renowned preacher and uh, student of the word in, in our fellowship, went all around the Midwest and the United States, and he tracked the marriages of 4,900 Christians married to non-Christians. And of the 4,900, 2,700 had already resulted in the Christian leaving the church, well over half. 1,300 had resulted in the Christian staying in the church, but the mate never came to Jesus Christ. Only 900, and that's right under 20%, resulted in the mate being converted. So in other words, if you're one of the 20%, again, praise God. But ask yourself this, do you want your daughter to take that same chance or your son? Are the parents not teaching things right? You know, is the, is the church falling down on its responsibility? Do the people just not listen? And here's the point, I think. When it comes to the idea of, uh, uh, you know, we should be disturbed by the number of young people when it comes to marriage. Saying, I'm not going to take God that seriously because that's what they're doing. When it comes to marriage, I can marry whoever I want to. I'm not going to take God that seriously and ask him. And the results and the divorces that we're seeing show us that's not a healthy thing to do. Those who are single, would you ever dream of marrying somebody who said, You know, I'll marry you, but after we're married, we're never going to eat together. Everything else that we do, uh, we'll do together, but we're not going to eat together because I don't want to eat with you. Nobody wants to marry somebody who doesn't want to share their meals with them. And I can understand how you'd want to marry a person that doesn't want to pray with you. Or I don't understand that, rather, how you'd want to marry somebody who who doesn't want to pray with you, that doesn't want to read the Bible with you, uh, that doesn't want to take the children to church with you. I can't understand that. Because a Christian marrying a non-Christian is just not healthy. 
And history and the Bible have borne that out. I'm not saying that you can't fall in love with non-Christians. You know, that'd be pretty naive and pretty dumb on my part to say that. What I am saying is we need to be able to decide I'm not going to marry a non-Christian. And that's what they did in Nehemiah's day. They didn't say, uh, we'll pretend the foreigners don't have good-looking girls and good-looking boys. You know, again, that's, that's not smart. The scripture still says, whether they want to believe it or not, in the passage we read in 2 Corinthians 6, or yeah, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And among the things that's included in there is realizing that one of the easiest ways to do that is for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. There's no yoke that binds people together more strongly than a marriage. And to marry an unbeliever is to deliberately assert your will over the will of God. It's to say that... Everybody wake up, Revely's being played. I'm going to have flashbacks, so I don't like that. To say that in this one area of my life, I intend to do what God wishes that I would not do. That's a serious thing to say. How do you bond yourself together with someone who you know will never spend eternity with you if they don't change? Now, I'm not saying to hate unbelievers. We're supposed to love them. We live among them. We work with them. We have them in our homes. But you don't find anywhere in the scriptures where God says, please, go ahead and marry them. That's not what he wants. Every church is just one generation away from extinction. And this will help them do that if they keep following that path. God wants distinctness in the home. He wants dependence upon him for guidance. That we're going to be different. We're not going to conform to the world. We're not going to marry unbelievers. Now, if you've done that, let me say this. You may be pretty disturbed right now. But I'm not trying to write off Christians who are married to non-Christians. You're married to that person, so I think you should be the best spouse that you can be in that home. And I, nor any other person in this church, well, I and any other person in this church, is willing to help in any way we can with that situation. But you're called to be a good spouse. But I am saying, if you're not married... Maybe you ought to think about writing God a letter and saying, on this one, God, I won't compromise. I won't compromise. Have you ever thought about Ruth, the Moabite, when she gets ready to turn and leave? She's a Moabite. They worship the god Chemosh as well as other foreign gods. One of the things she said when she turned to go with Boaz, your God will be my God. When you change gods, you've changed a lot, haven't you? Your God will be my God. People influence other people. And you need to ask, are you the one influencing or being influenced? 1 John 2 says, in verse 15 through 17, don't love the world or anything in the world. The world's passing away. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33 says that bad, or, yeah, bad companionship corrupts good morals. James will say that friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
Peter will say, you're pilgrims. You need to abstain from those fleshly desires. You need to keep your eye on where you're going, where you're headed to. They also had distinctness in their business relationships. Look at verse 31. And as the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. There's a lot that's involved in that, but I I want to touch on this. On any holy day, there's a time to do business and there's a time when it's not appropriate. There's a time to do things God's way and stick strictly with that. There's a time to talk business. There's a time uh, when it's not appropriate. The Jews hated to turn down a chance to make a dollar. They've been known throughout history as people who, you know, they're wise in their finances. They would do that. Neighboring caravans would come in with people and goods. And if they happened to come by on the Sabbath, the Jews knew, you know, if we don't do something now, we're going to lose out on some business. And so they got to where they would compromise. And you start ending up being influenced by the cultures. If you don't do business with me now, I'm going on to the next town. And so they ignored God and paid attention to the dollar. Being distinct means taking God seriously in business. A godly person should be uh, governed by a principle that's higher than just how to make a dollar. I understand that there are certain situations where people have to work on the Lord's Day. I understand that. And I understand that there are other circumstances that are involved that become an exception. But when the motivation and you only, know, you only know what your heart is. When your motivation is to make money, you really should think very seriously about what you're doing. I don't think this or, or any other scripture talks about distinction in such a way that says we're going to uh, uh, avoid being employed anywhere if we're going to have to work on the Lord's Day. I don't believe that's what it's saying. I don't believe that's what's being taught. I do believe there's a responsibility when it comes to the first day of the week to say, God still needs to come first. How can I do that? I need to consider that in light of things as well. Today we live in a different culture. We don't get to make certain choices about where we're going to work. And and we have to be careful about how we let the world dictate on what we're going to do and how we're going to spend our Sundays. But I know every day of the week belongs to the Lord, but there's one special day that's called the Lord's Day. It's set apart, and we're set apart for him on that time. And part of our distinction should be, I'm going to have a determination that I'm not going to compromise that. I will be with God's people on God's day because that's important. And then I want you to notice there was a distinction in their religious practices. And that still is kind of a carryover, but it's a little bit different when you look at verse 39. The last sentence, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. And that's the theme all the way down from verses 32 through 39. Nine times the phrase, the house of our God, is used there. Honor his day. For the Jews, that was the Sabbath. For the Christian, it's the first day of the week. We honor God. It's our day to celebrate as a body, to celebrate unity, to celebrate loyalty to Christ, to declare truth, to make a public affirmation that cannot be done at any other time. 
The Jews got to where they defiled their Sabbaths. You can read the book of Amos and the book of Ezekiel and some of the other prophets about how they had done that and what God's point of view was on it, his outlook. Christians defile the first day of the week. Sometimes they do it with legalism. Sometimes they do it with laziness. Sometimes they do it with a lack of hospitality. But it's a day to honor God and not please self. And without reading the the whole text, I want you to notice that one of the main themes in there is their giving. Their distinction is seen in their generosity and in their giving. They're going to give a portion of what he's given to them back. It's it's to honor God so that his work can keep on going. You know, we're just coming off of our pack the pulpit, and and Walter talked about that, that, you know, how generous we were. All that we gave to help others and to do that. And it's, it's amazing to see when people have that, that distinction, that determination, that dependence, how practical it's shown and how generous God's people can, can be. It's an absolutely amazing thing. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, God will say to them there, test me. See if I will not open up the windows of heaven and just pour out blessings upon you. You depend on me, you make yourself distinct, and I'll bless you like you've never seen before. The other nations will look at you and see how blessed you are, Malachi said. What an incredible thing to realize, that's who we are. Whenever we show our generosity, whenever our giving reflects what it should, it shows how important being distinct is to us, how important depending upon God is. So let me give you two thoughts as we wind the lesson out couple of reminders. Number one, your distinctness will witness to your dedication. It's not how well you sing at church. It's not how often you attend services. They all say something about your dedication, but it's your day in and day out living every aspect of your life. It's your lifestyle. What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your time? What do you spend your energies on? 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul will tell Timothy, bodily training is good for a little bit. Godliness is profitable in all things. Not only in this life, but in the one to come. And this life is one where we do everything we can in every aspect of our life to prepare ourselves for the next life. What if we all had the same dedication to being like God that we have towards our careers, our pleasures, and our relationships, that God's always going to come first, what do we do then? What would we be like? I think much is lost when uh, we're indefinite, we're indecisive, and especially when we're disobedient. Look at what God has called us to. And secondly, your distinctness will witness to your determination. How valuable is it to you and to me, to be distinct. What if we all took our responsibilities to God this seriously? And we sat down and we wrote a letter and we said, God, here's my letter of intention. How I intend to behave from now on. And I'm going to sign this letter and I'm going to give it to the church. I'm going to give it to the elders. And I want them to hold me accountable. How I'm going to behave in my marriage. How I'm going to treat my spouse. 
how loving I'm going to be, how I'm going to treat my children and the priorities that I'm going to have for them, how I'm going to behave in the church and be involved and be a part of a ministry and make sure that your kingdom grows, how I'm going to behave toward my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not going to argue with them anymore. I don't care if they disagree with me. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be like Jesus toward them. And I'm going to treat them like Jesus. How I'm going to behave in my social life. I'm going to make a commitment to you about where I go. I'm not going to go to these places anymore. I'm going to be careful about what I read, what I listen to, what I do on the computer. And I'm going to commit that to you. How I'm going to behave in areas where I'm weak. And you fill in the blank and you name them to him. How I'm going to behave from now on as a disciple of Jesus. For the early church, and it should be true for us, baptism expressed a form of witness which publicly declared an absolute loyalty to Jesus Christ. I am yours from here on out until the day I take my last breath. That's what baptism affirms. And then you walk the way you've confessed. What they did had an incredible response and effect on those people. And I think we need to reevaluate, look at some things, help each other, encourage one another, and make a determination. We're going to be as distinctive as God wants us to be, as dependent upon him as we need to be. And we are determined. We're going to be God's people, whatever it costs, until the day we take our last breath in this life. And if there's any way at all we can help you do that, would you come while we stand?